Could you follow the Moscow rules? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast, where we talk about writing, spies, and writing about spies. I'm your host, espionage author P.A. Duncan, and this is Season 2, Episode 23. And last week was the one-year anniversary of this podcast. When I started doing the podcast last year, after taking a week-long workshop in how to start a podcast, I honestly didn't know if I had the energy or the talent to keep it up on a weekly basis. It turned out that at the height of a pandemic, it gave me something to look forward to each week. And now it's become somewhat of a habit. I do wish I had the talent that's portrayed in some of the podcasts I listen to, the professionalism and the sound quality and so forth. But despite scripting the podcast before I record it, I have, you know, that stutter that makes me flub and makes me hesitate fairly frequently. And I have to work on editing that out. That's actually the most onerous part of podcasting. I don't mind the recording. The recording's fun because, hey, who doesn't love listening to themselves talk? It's what comes after that that is onerous, I think probably because I'm still pretty much an amateur at it. I mean, I've practiced, I've watched YouTube videos on audio editing, and each week I find something a little different to do to make it sound better, but that audio editing is often the longest aspect of doing the podcast. Sometimes it even takes longer than the recording itself. And once I did get started, I didn't want to give it up. I had become invested in a couple of podcasts, a couple of espionage podcasts that just simply disappeared without reason to my great disappointment. There was one where each week the podcaster would take a a Jean Le Carré book and, and super analyze it. And you might say, well, he got to the end of the list. Well, but no, he was only about halfway through Le Carré's canon before it just stopped. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to expect the worst, but who knows? Anyway, I didn't want to do that to the, to the few, but loyal listeners that I do have. And the recording, the editing, the scheduling, along with, I share the link on my social media platforms, and I update the podcast webpage and the podcast Facebook page, that cuts into my writing time. And I generally grow weary with something that does that. 
but I plan my weeks and my each day, as a matter of fact, with a certain amount of OCD. And for now, it works. Now I can work it in and still give myself the weekends off. But the weekends are always there to do something I didn't have time to do. And as I said, I really do look forward to recording the podcast every week. This week's Moscow Rule, number three, by the way, is everyone is potentially under opposition control, which is also the name of the third story in my upcoming book, Spy Flash 3, The Moscow Rules. The genesis of this particular CIA protocol was really the reality of people working and living in countries that were hostile to the U.S. and its citizens during the Cold War. In the early years of the Cold War, being posted to an embassy in East Germany or the Soviet Union was lonely because all you had technically was the embassy staff to be friends with. And a lot of times, you know, as with any government agency, there's a hierarchy And so your friendships were limited because you weren't supposed to fraternize above your GS pay level. I'm glad that I didn't pay any attention to that or else I wouldn't have had a second husband. But anyway, I didn't work in an embassy, however, so (laughs) I wasn't compromised, as it were. So the case officers the CIA case officers, who were mostly male, could bring their wives, and their wives were sometimes aware of and occasionally active in their spouse's work. But life still wasn't easy for them either, the wives or, say, the secretaries or other female employees of the of the embassy. And the KGB, or the Stasi, could use a spouse and did to get to the case officer through the spouse. So there was always kind of a, a a precarious balance. You know, the CIA didn't honestly want the spouses there, but they understood that if the spouses were there, that perhaps the case officers wouldn't fall prey to a, a lovely Russian woman who had ulterior motives. But Basically, you had to figure out or and understand that anyone who went out of their way to engage you, any Russian, for example, to be friendly to you had to have an ulterior motive. And that did work for the KGB, sometimes far too often. Now, in East Germany, one of the former heads of the Stasi had a whole stable of what he called Romeos. And they were usually men, because Russians can be sexist too, and East Germans. Women were thought to be more vulnerable than men, easier to compromise. And so these agents, picked for their charm and their good looks, would attach themselves to female embassy employees or wives who were lonely or lovelorn, 
And these agents would be everything a lonely woman might want. You know, there when you need him, takes you out to great places, you know, wonderful restaurants, uh, makes you feel like you're the only one in the world. And some of these agents went so far as to have sham marriages with these women. And a lot of times the ceremony would be conducted by a priest or a minister who was actually another Stasi agent. But the women really thought they were married. Now, this, all this machination and skullduggery served two purposes. The relationship itself, which they always made sure they had proof of in the form of, you know, pictures of them having sex, could be used to blackmail the woman's spouse, for example, because they sometimes didn't limit themselves to single women. Or the woman herself, you know, she would lose her job if it was shown that she was fraternizing with a foreign agent. And it could also mean that this husband, quote-unquote, would end up recruiting his new wife to steal secrets for him from the embassy. Now, this also happened to male embassy employees, usually those who weren't married, some who were, or those who were married and their spouses weren't there. The KGB had specially trained women agents, again, chosen for their beauty and their ability to beguile, who would target male case officers, embassy guards. There were... Back in the 70s and 80s, there were several cases of embassy guards being compromised or other embassy employees. And again, this was for the purpose of either compromising and blackmailing the individuals or for recruiting them. And it worked far too often for the CIA's comfort. So when they started developing these informal Moscow rules, they made sure to address this with the reminder that everyone is potentially under opposition control. The friendly waitress at a restaurant, the babushka sweeping the sidewalk, the man who asks if you have a light for a cigarette, the woman who nods and smiles at you when she passes you by every day in the same place. So the case officers would also have to be trained to spot someone who might be targeting them. And CIA trainees would be sent on a specific task, often in a town or city near where they were being trained. And they would have to note anyone who looks suspicious. And that's the inspiration for my story everyone is potentially under opposition control. I'm only doing one reading session today because all this week, Monday through Thursday, I'm in an all-day virtual writing workshop, and I have to work in my regular day, you know, posting to social media, marketing my work, a little bit of writing, a little bit of editing. I have to work that in between the workshop sessions. And then Friday, I have to leave town for a weekend wedding. And so I'm kind of truncating today's podcast in an effort to not 
put any more pressure on myself, especially since I haven't gotten an okay on the ceremony from the bride and the wedding's on Saturday. So, oh, and I'm actually performing the wedding. I'm a recognized officiant in my state to certify weddings and, and conduct weddings. And she hasn't approved the ceremony yet. So I, I don't know. <laughs> but for now, let's get started with a little bit of a reading from Everyone is Potentially Under Opposition Control. Email to trainee727 at un.di.net from instructor1 at un.di.net. Subject, Assignment 23. Trainee 727, your assignment is to proceed through a regular day, interacting with individuals as you normally do. Stay within your established profile. But for today only, you will not vary your routine. At the end of the day, you will report back to campus, having identified at least five individuals you have decided are under opposition control. Use your phone's camera to obtain photographs of your suspects. You will justify how you came to your conclusion for each individual you selected. It's important you do not engage with these individuals beyond a normal interaction. For example, if you never have had a conversation with your barista, do not do so today. Continue to converse in your regular fashion with people you commonly encounter and with whom you pass time. However, you cannot question them to determine if they are under opposition control. The purpose of this exercise is to determine how observant you are, how well you take disassociated clues, and come to a justifiable conclusion. Your assignment starts at 0700 and concludes at 1600. You and the rest of your team will provide your results at 1900. Good luck, Instructor 1. Washington, D.C., 2015. Sybil Fleming read the email three times and committed the instructions to memory. She shrugged into her backpack, tucked her breakfast smoothie into the backpack's side pocket, and left the apartment. In the elevator, she met her first potential target and studied him beyond the typical threat assessment any woman did when encountering an unfamiliar man in an elevator. He was in his thirties, business suit, briefcase in hand, a potential weapon, but no obvious bulges in the suit indicating a gun. He watched her reflection in the steel-sided elevator car and smiled at her. Sybil had lived in this apartment for a week as part of her cover, and she hadn't seen this man before. But a businessman from his clothing away on a trip, maybe, and that was why she hadn't seen him. The elevator doors opened on the first floor, and he moved to exit first. He looked over his shoulder, smiled at Sybil, and said, 
Have a nice day. She trailed him from the apartment building, and he turned left, toward Metro, where she was also headed. On the surface, that wasn't unusual. Dozens of clones of him, striving young men in expensive suits they'd probably had to buy as castaways in a thrift store, surged like lemmings toward the Metro escalators. Same as every morning. She kept an eye on the back of his close-cropped head until someone taller intervened and she lost him. At the top of the escalator, the same busker who'd been there the past week coaxed soft jazz from his clarinet. Each morning, Sybil had dropped a dollar in the open clarinet case at his feet and did so today. She stayed to the right, riding the escalator down so she could observe. Right on time, the woman in a chic dress, leather tote bag, and stilettos began clomping down the left side of the escalator. As she did every day, Sybil checked out the woman's outfit. But today, for the first time, the woman looked at her and made eye contact. She looked away from Sybil with haste and increased her pace down the escalator. Some tourist who hadn't abided by the stand-right-walk-left unwritten rule blocked the woman's progress. Sybil took out her phone and snapped the woman's picture. Right as the woman looked right at Sybil. Sybil quickly adjusted the position of the camera and took other pictures of the ads on the wall, the vaulted ceiling, the play of light from the skylights. The woman shouldered a tourist aside and hustled down the escalator. Potential number one? Or was elevator guy the first? On the platform for the orange line, Sybil looked around. The group of tourists who'd blocked the escalator, a man, a woman, and two teens, huddled around a map and spoke in low tones. Sybil caught a word or two that might be Russian, maybe Serbian. The whole family wore Washington Redskins jerseys and Washington Nationals caps, price tags still attached brand new jeans, evident from the fold marks, and new sneakers, no scuffs or wear on them at all. New shoes on a day when you'd likely do a lot of walking? But would people under opposition control bring their kids along? Hello, Sybil, she told herself. You've watched plenty of episodes of The Americans. Holding her phone down at her side, she took a burst of pictures of the family. Possibility number two, or number three, or was she overanalyzing? But what was the likelihood she'd have three possibilities in minutes? Remember, she thought, everyone is potentially under opposition control. Her train came and she boarded. The car was crowded and she had to stand hanging onto one of the poles. At subsequent stops, more people squeezed in, and she ended up with someone pressed against her back, a guy from the feel of him. Damn it. She'd switched her backpack to the front to make more room, but this guy had decided that was an opportunity to cop a feel. Sybil shifted away from him. He shifted with her. 
son of a bitch. She turned until she faced him, making her backpack a barrier. Well, well. The man from the apartment building elevator. Oh, hi again, he said, smiling. Sorry for bumping into you. Really crowded today. Yeah, Sybil replied, not looking at him. We live in the same building, right? You were on the elevator this morning. Sybil pretended to study something on her phone. Um, I don't know. I was pretty spaced out this morning. Oh, late night. The way he said it, low, sultry, suggestive, pinged her jerk radar. Without looking up, she said, that's none of your business. Hey, wow, I'm trying to be friendly. What are you? One of those feminist chicks who hates men? Lay off, Sybil said. He pushed himself against the backpack. Or what? Lady, said someone behind her. Is this man bothering you? Thick accent, definitely Eastern European. Sybil looked around, the man from the tourist family. He was tall and thick-chested, muscles straining the sleeves of his jersey. I'm okay, thank you, Sybil said, smiling. Oh, you're nice to foreign trash, but not to me, said the other man. Because he's being polite, and you're being a jerk, Sybil said, again not looking up from her phone. The businessman spat in her face the gob of spit landing below her right eye. Everyone in the immediate vicinity gasped. You fucking half-black bitch, the businessman said. Pretty soon it's going to be legal to hang you monkeys from trees again. Sybil now understood the expression seeing red was a real thing. She envisioned punching the bastard in the throat, but instead she said, apologize? The Eastern European man pushed forward. Yes, buddy, apologize to lady. A tall, lanky black dude with dreads got into the businessman's face. And apologize to my kid who heard what you said. The businessman's face creased into a mask of anger. Fuck all you blacks and foreigners, he screamed. We're sending you back to where you came from. We're making America number one again. A lot of cell phones were out now, held up by the Metro riders to film the scene. Similar rants from Kermit Harlan supporters were all the rage on social media right now. Though all the adrenaline in Sybil's blood was urging her into fight mode, she forced herself not to engage. She was surrounded by unwanted attention. The black dude took hold of the businessman's arm, and the businessman screamed, Assault! Assault! This thug's assaulting me! Call 911! We need a cop to shoot this thug! The train lurched to a stop at a station. The black dude and the Eastern European man each took the businessman by an arm and shoved him through the open doors and onto the platform. Everyone in the car applauded. The two men stood at the doorway to make sure he didn't try to get back inside. The door's closing chime sounded. People rushed in, and the doors closed. The businessman picked himself up from the platform, straightened his jacket and tie, and looked into the metro car. He and Sybil locked eyes, and he showed no hostility 
as if he'd flipped a switch. He smiled at her as the train pulled away. Possibility number three or four or... Damn, she'd lost count. You okay? The black dude asked, handing her a clean handkerchief from his pocket. She took the handkerchief and wiped spittle from her cheek, satisfied her hand didn't shake. I'm fine, thanks, she said. She looked at the Eastern European man again. Thanks. No problem. Man was very rude. Yeah, he was. Sybil handed the handkerchief back to its owner. Toss it in a trash can when you leave. Is your child okay? Oh, I said that for a fact. My kid's not with me, he replied with a grin. He returned to where he'd been standing with some other black men his age. Several white people around them gave him a dubious look. They were the stereotype for a thug, rather what white people thought a thug should look like. The dude with the dreads looked at Sybil and said something to his friends. They laughed, and the dude winked at her. Possibility number five or... Well, she'd given up counting anyway. Sybil was relieved to leave the metro at her usual stop and take to the D.C. streets. Now, what else was waiting for her on this interesting morning? She bought a Coke from the fast food truck she usually stopped by, and its Vietnamese patroness was as taciturn as ever. Except she wrapped the Coke can in a napkin, something she never did, even when you asked for one. Napkin expensive, no napkin, was the usual response from the vendor. Sybil took the can and continued walking. She peeled the napkin from the damp can and saw something written on it. Though the ink was blurred from the can's condensation, she read, Remember, everyone is potentially under opposition control. The instructors at Spy U definitely had a sense of humor. But she'd known that from the day she reported to her cover job, an exercise designed to get her comfortable using a different name and living under a cover. Her cover job was as a cashier in the International Spy Museum. When she arrived 15 minutes early, as she did every day, she went into the employee locker room, locked up her backpack, and finished the breakfast smoothie she couldn't drink on the subway. She pinned on her name tag and headed for the supervisor's office to get her cash register assignment and the stocking duties she had before the museum opened. We got new postcards in, said the supervisor. Take down the Checkpoint Charlie postcards and put them in the markdown section and put these in their place. She handed a box to Sybil. You're on register four today. Great. The one nearest the exit, the one everybody went to as they were leaving. Sybil went to the gift shop returning the nods of other co-workers busy with their stocking duties. She moved the Checkpoint Charlie postcards from the display rack to the section with the sign reading Everything 40% Off in bold red lettering. She hoped someone had already reprogrammed the registers with the markdown. Otherwise, she'd spend her day dealing with people complaining about not getting a 50-cent discount on a buck-and-a-quarter postcard. That done, she opened the box of new postcards and almost laughed aloud. 
in black ink on a white background were the Moscow Rules. They were bound in groups of 100 and held with a glued strip of paper. Sybil picked up a random packet and took off the paper strip. Printed on the inside of the strip was, Everyone is potentially under opposition control. Sybil had to smile. I got the message, she thought, and went back to her work. Okay, that's it for today, though this is a much longer story, and it has a bit of a twist at the end, but I'm not going to tell you. You'll have to read the story to find out what that is. So, how can you read it? You can pre-order Spy Flash 3, The Moscow Rules, for a special pre-order price of 99 cents. On release day, July 10th, it goes back to its regular price. You can find the pre-order and also Spy Flash and Spy Flash 2, both also on sale for 99 cents each, at Amazon.com slash author, slash Phyllis Duncan, and then look for the series Spy Flash. By the time you hear this, it'll be the final day of my writing workshop, which is a generative workshop rather than a critique workshop. Each day, we got a prompt for our writing homework, and the next day, we read aloud what we'd written to the group, unedited unnerving, to say the least, but a great experience to stimulate the creativity, and who knows, maybe what I've written will find its way into a future book. And my first in-person book event in 19 months went great last weekend. I talked to a lot of people, several signed up for my newsletter, and I sold three books. All in all, it was a fun afternoon. I hope you're able to enjoy some new normal this weekend, but the U.S. is having a spike of cases of the Delta variant of COVID, so mask wearing is probably a good idea. If you're vaccinated, you're protected, but others may not be, like my two grandkids who aren't old enough yet to be vaccinated. Better safe than sorry. And whatever you're doing, wherever you go, remember, always keep an eye out for spies. This has been a production of Unexpected Paths Media, copyright 2021, all rights reserved. Join us next week for a new episode of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast.